Today on Blue 58, the Packers added a big-bodied running back to their stable of ball carriers in the draft this spring. Is A.J. Dillon the second coming of Eddie Lacy? Let's talk about that. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's dive right in. First, a little update on on something that I wrote for acmepackingcompany.com. I hate rankings. Rankings are dumb. Uh, But the off-season and a pandemic means that all we get right now are rankings and lists that are designed to make people angry. And boy, did this article from ESPN uh, make me a little hacked off. So they released um, the top-to-bottom ranking of the NFL's quarterback situations during the Super Bowl era. How well has each team performed at the game's most important position since 1966? And wouldn't you know it, the New England Patriots came out on top. And they spent a lot of time trying to justify their decision, dressing it up in a bunch of different ways, but basically it comes down to Tom Brady has six rings and nobody else has that many rings, so they are by default the best quarterback team of the last what is it, 50-some years now? And that's just not a very good argument um, because that means some people's rings count differently than others. And it's just it's just silly top to bottom. But I think the Packers get especially short shrift here because the article actually says that the Packers had really awful quarterback play for almost 30 years, 20 years, between Bart Starr and Brett Favre, which just is not accurate at all, really. They really hang a lot of this article on Jerry Taggy, their uh, 11th overall selection in the 1972 draft, who was bad. I'll, I'll give them that. He was not any good, but it's also not true to say that the Packers had just flat-out bad quarterback play for 20 years from 1972 through 1992. Lynn Dickey and Don Mikowski both fall in that era, and they were both pretty darn good at times. Mikowski made a Pro Bowl. Both Dickey and Mikowski led the NFL in passing yards. Uh, Dickey was the mad bomber of outside of Daryl LaMonica. He just went downfield all the time and probably would have had much better success had he had a decent team around him. But it's just silly to stack up Tom Brady's rings against the rest of the league. A couple people I've interacted with about this article today have pointed out that the Dallas Cowboys have a much better argument than maybe even the Packers for um, a top spot on the list. Uh, They don't have maybe the highest highs that the Packers do, but they've got a pretty long list of very good quarterbacks dating back through the entire Super Bowl era. Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman, Tony Romo, Dak Prescott. It's, It's a pretty darn good list. The San Francisco 49ers. I mean, they've got Joe Montana and Steve Young, who are both Hall of Famers. Uh, Jeff Garcia was pretty good for a long time. Alex Smith was respectable. Colin Kaepernick's highs were as good as anybody in the league for a short amount of time. I mean, he was, just ask the Packers, he was pretty dangerous there for a while in the playoffs, right? He was good enough to be in the conversation to win a Super Bowl. They were right there. It's, It's just not Tom Brady's rings versus everybody else. And that's kind of an ongoing frustration for me, especially when it comes to ESPN. And I know they get part of the the Northeast bias there a little bit, and it's a real thing. It, it definitely exists. But Brady is not 
the entire reason that the the Patriots have won those six Super Bowls. It's just not true. Um, and you can't talk about this anywhere on the internet without getting shouted down by a very vocal group of Patriots fans, but here it goes. He was not even one of the primary reasons they won a couple of those early Super Bowls. Um, certainly not a big reason that they got to them. He was the consummate game manager early on. Does he get credit for those Super Bowls? I guess. But if you're counting his six rings as the deciding factor for why their quarterback situation is better, why not the Steelers then? And if you're just counting rings, does Terry Bradshaw's four mean he's twice as good as Peyton Manning, who only has two? But does that also mean that Tom Brady is only 50% better than Terry Bradshaw? It just it starts to not make sense in a hurry. It's frustrating. You should check out the whole conversation. The Packers got the shaft a little bit. Anyway, is A.J. Dillon the new Eddie Lacy? Big apologies to my man, Krister, who asked this question way back around the NFL draft. And I don't know what's happened in the world since then, but it's been hard to circle back to it. Uh, so this question got a little bit lost in the shuffle. And we've got a couple other questions sort of uh, kind of floating around there about running backs in particular that I would like to take up at some point on the podcast. Specifically, where can you get good ones? A, a commenter on YouTube asked, um, kind of challenged the, the notion that it's easy to find good replacement running backs. And, and if that was you, I'm sorry, I, I've misplaced your name, but that is something that I'm working on. I, I'm, I'm going to bring that up on the podcast here in the near future. But Krister asked way back by around the NFL draft, we haven't really had a big back like Eddie Lacy since Eddie Lacy. Is A.J. Dillon the new Eddie Lacy, more of a smash, pound, smash mouth, ground and pound type back? That, I think, is a pretty good question. And I think it's kind of an open question, too. Because first, we have to recognize how good Eddie Lacy was. Really good. There, that's that's uh, that's all we need to say about that. But Lacey was really good for, for a couple seasons there. It fell apart at the end, sure, but I'll defend Eddie Lacey as long as he needs defending. Uh, he was good for the Packers. Averaged over four yards a carry. Every year he was a primary starter. The last year he was in Green Bay, he was going over five yards a clip before Mike McCarthy ran him on a bad wheel against the Cowboys and hurt him to the point that his season was ended. Uh, but he was solid. And he was a better receiver than I think people give him credit for. Um, but he was certainly limited in some areas too. I think there is a temptation when you see Eddie Lacy and see him listed at five foot eleven and 250 pounds to say, well, A.J. Dillon is 6 feet tall and 247 pounds. They're about the same, right? Not so much exactly. The story on A.J. Dillon... I think is is more about athleticism than about size. The top end speed and three cone drill for Eddie Lacy and AJ Dillon are roughly comparable. Lacy ran a four six four. His three cone drill was seven point three three seconds. So not great top end speed, not super great agility. AJ Dillon ran a four five three, and had a seven point one three in the three cone. Pretty decent forty yard dash. Good but not great in the three cone. Explosion, though, is a different story. We're looking at leaping numbers here. How quickly and how strong can you generate explosive power? Eddie Lacy had a very respectable 33.5-inch vertical, did not do the broad jump. But A.J. Dillon, at 247 pounds, posted a 41-inch vertical, 
and a 10-foot, 11-inch broad jump. And I think that paints a much better picture of his overall athleticism and, and shows that he is a better overall athlete than Eddie Lacy. And I think that athleticism is going to let him do more things than Eddie Lacy could do on the football field. Eddie Lacy, for all the things that he did well, was pretty much just a straight downhill runner. You're either in the I formation, you're in the pistol, whatever. He's going to be taking the ball and pretty much be go- going to be going straight up field. That's fine if you can be fast enough to run over at least one guy and still maintain pretty decent top speed, which early on Eddie Lacy could do, or throw in his circle button spin move and be off to the races. But basically, he's going to be going in a straight line. I don't know if A.J. Dillon is going to have that much side-to-side wiggle, but he at least has enough explosion and ability to be a one-cut change of pace kind of back. He'll have the ability to downshift and then upshift as quickly as he needs to and change directions. And that is important, I think, in the zone blocking scheme that the Packers are running under Matt LaFleur. That athleticism is going to do him, allow him to do two of the three things that I think are very important um, in this system, inside zone and outside zone. So inside versus outside zone basically comes down to aiming points. If you're the running back and you're you're taking the ball, where are you aiming? On an inside zone, it's going to be basically at the butt of the guard to whatever side of the play that you're going to. So if it's a left inside zone, you're looking at the backside of the left guard, maybe a little bit outside. If it's to the right, it's the right guard. Pretty simple, right? Outside zone is more the outside shoulder of the tackle. And all of your blockers are going to be moving that direction. And you'll just continue to follow your blockers as long as there's space to go in front of you. But if that zone is ever cut off, if that area is ever cut off, zone blocking is set up such that what you're supposed to do is stick your outside foot in the ground and cut back behind your blockers and upfield. They're creating an alley for you to run through. And an inside zone especially, it's nice to have a bigger bodied guy who's going to be able to sort through some of the wash there. And I think that's where A.J. Dillon is going to really excel because he is that bigger-bodied guy. It's not so much that he's going to be pounding the ball right up the middle of the defense, but he is going to handle that wear a little bit better maybe than a guy like Aaron Jones, who is pretty darn good at inside zone stuff himself. But he also has the speed to get outside. And I think that's something that Eddie Lacy couldn't necessarily do quite as well. He had to do more things like tosses and, and things that let him get more of a running start towards the outside. The other thing I think that is is going to help Dylan set himself apart a little bit from uh, Lacey is receiving. And I, I know I said that Lacey was a pretty good receiver, probably better than he's given credit for. But I think Dylan's better overall athleticism is going to let the Packers use him in different ways. The Packers did try to motion Eddie Lacey out of the backfield a few times. Everybody knows or everybody knew that wasn't going to work. He was never going to beat any sort of coverage in space one-on-one. It was pretty much all screen game stuff for Eddie Lacy. I think Dylan has the athleticism to at least be a threat out in space if they want to motion him out of the backfield. Plus, he can also do all the screen game type stuff uh, that Lacy did. And I know that we've pointed out in the past that Dylan didn't do a lot of the receiving stuff uh, at Boston College. I wouldn't take that necessarily as as an indication that he can't. I just would, again, point out that he didn't do a lot of it. However, he's a good enough athlete that he should be able to figure it out. 
In fact, I think most running backs can probably be made into pretty good um, receivers the way the NFL is set up right now. Most of the the super big running backs like A.J. Dillon, well, they've they've kind of gone by the wayside. It's, it's more guys like Aaron Jones now uh, than it ever has been. More willowy guys who can also work in space. There are some, some more rocked up, you know, 220-pound action hero type running backs, but they are not the the same sort of primary guys that they once were. I think Dylan can learn to do the things that that other more modern modern backs have done, and he will figure out how to be a better receiver out of the backfield. It's surprising to me that some athletic backs don't become good receivers, and that's always something I've wondered about with Adrian Peterson. Why was he never a better receiver? Probably because he didn't really have to be. He was so effective as a runner that he really didn't have to add anything else to his game. But it seems like a guy who was as as effective as he was, or or still is, I guess, should have been a better receiver. He certainly was a good enough athlete uh, that he should have been able to be better. But um, that's just an aside. I think that Dylan probably can figure it out. And all reports out of out of Boston College and the people who have watched him in practice and stuff there seem to indicate that's something he's going to be able to do. But um, to put a bow on it, I don't think he's the next Eddie Lacy. I think there are some Lacy-like things that he can do, and certainly the power that he brings uh, to his game is is something that's going to be worth watching. But I wouldn't look at him strictly as just a big back, downhill, running back sort of guy. Take your eye off the ball, chapter 13. We're learning about front office structures. The big takeaway for me from this chapter is that structure is important, but getting everybody on the same page with the vision for the team is even more important. So Kerwin is pretty firmly in favor of a personnel situation where the the, the head coach has the final word on personnel. And I don't know if I want to say that's the right or wrong call. It's not something that would be my preference though. I think there are more examples of that going poorly than that going well. I think what you really want is a guy whose full-time job it is to figure out what players are best for your team. The caveat is that he's got to be on the same page as the head coach. And that, I think, is what led to the big disagreement he talks about in this chapter with uh, Chip Kelly and Howie Roseman in Philadelphia. It's not so much that either one of them was right or wrong, although Chip Kelly's decisions did ultimately prove to be fairly wrong uh, for the Eagles. But it's that Kelly and Roseman were not on the same page. In Green Bay, I think it's pretty clear so far that Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur seem to be on the same page. If nothing else, this offseason should show that they are in lockstep as far as um, what they think the Packers roster should look like. If Matt LaFleur had wanted more help at wide receiver, you have to think he would have gotten it. There were good receivers on the board when the Packers were picking at 30 and then traded up to 26. Um, Michael Pittman out of USC is one that that I, I've thought about a few times. Uh, but they, they didn't want to go that direction, and uh, they ended up with the draft class that they did. And I think this draft class that they've taken is pretty indicative of the sort of team that they want to build. However, we don't have to look too far into the recent past to find a situation where the Packers did not have everybody on the same page as far as the personnel. Let's take a look back to the 2017 offseason. So the Packers have just beaten the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs. 
They've lost in spectacular fashion to the Atlanta Falcons, and they are trying to retool after running the table. But a bunch of big names end up walking out the door. Micah Hyde heads to Buffalo. Julius Peppers heads back to, back to Carolina. And Jared Cook kind of floats around for a while, then ends up with the Raiders. What happened? Rob Domovsky wrote about this a couple years ago and had this to say, quote, the 2017 offseason was a strange time in the Packers personnel department. They also let Julius Peppers leave that year, having already let Michael Hyde leave. And he, Peppers, went on to have another productive season in Carolina. Then general manager Ted Thompson was no longer on top of his game and relied heavily on salary cap slash finance guy Russ Ball, who has little background in scouting to make personnel decisions. When asked how he felt that the Packers didn't even make him an offer to stay, Hyde said, I wouldn't say hurt, but that it was frustrating for sure just because of the hard work and how much that you put in for four years, end quote. So I think it's fair to say that was the offseason of Russ Ball. For whatever reason, Ted Thompson is not as actively involved in personnel stuff as he once was. I think if you wanted to make the case that there were already some signs of health-related decline in play there, you could do that. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that on this podcast, but I think a case could be made. Uh, If you look at the timeline of when he announced that and how quickly the Packers reacted to get him into the Hall of Fame and then effectively out of the public eye, there might be a little bit more to that theory. Again, I'm not putting that theory out there on this podcast right now, but I think if you were so inclined, you could make that case. But just for the sake of argument, let's call that the offseason of Russ Ball. The departures, again, Micah Hyde, Julius Peppers, Jared Cook, all out the door, all went on to be productive elsewhere. None of them went for big money. On the flip side, the Packers brought in Martellus Bennett. And every single one of those four decisions was wrong. The next offseason, before the Packers hired their next GM, Mike McCarthy was as close to he ever got as publicly vocal, too publicly vocal, about the Packers' reticence in free agency. He made it known through some private channels that kind of worked out in the media that he was not happy with the Packers' free agent decisions over the past few years. And he also made it clear that he wanted a GM that he could work with. At the time, the frontrunner for the Packers GM job was Russ Ball. Bob McGinn did a great job breaking all this down on his now defunct website, bobmcginnfootball.com. And I wish you could read it. I don't think it's still out there. But he, he basically blew the story open that said the Packers were about to hire Russ Ball as their next GM until Mike McCarthy threw a fit because he didn't think he could work with them. What does that look like in practice? Well, that's a, that's a team that has a structure in place that has worked in the past but can't get everybody on the same page. Those are the silos Mark Murphy talked about. Now those silos seem to be broken down. And I think it's still an open question as to whether or not the Packers structure is working or, or will work long term. But at the very least, everybody seems to have the same vision. And I think that's a step in the right direction. The other thing I thought was really interesting in this chapter uh, was the three-part test for the health of your team's roster. 
Kerwin lays out three things. How much cap space do you project to have heading into free agency? He wants you to have about $15 million. What percentage of your salary cap do you have tied up in the three most expensive contracts? He's looking to have 30% or less. And how many starts did you get from rookies last year? You're looking for at least 30, since that's about the league average at the time he published this book. The Packers are currently sitting at $13.7 million in cap space. That is not counting rookie contracts. So prior to signing Christian Kirksey and Rick Wagner and a couple of their draft picks that they've gotten on the books so far, they probably would have been right about $15 million. I don't know the exact number, but they would have been right about there. So that's pretty good. What percentage of the salary cap are the Packers devoting to their top three contracts? The top three right now are taking up 27.15% of the cap. Aaron Rodgers is taking up just under 11%, 10.61. Devontae Adams is at 8.46, and Zadarius Smith is at 8.08. Pretty good, too. How many starts did the Packers get from rookies? I might be off here, but I came up with 29 for the, the rookie class last year. Darnell Savage and uh, Elton Jenkins both had 14 apiece, and Jay Sternberger threw in one additional start. Uh, playing a fullback-type role for a game. So the Packers, at least according to Kerwin's little rubric here, seem to be in pretty good shape as far as the health of their roster goes. And I think there's a pretty good chance they're going to get close to 30 starts again from rookies this year. Maybe not so many from uh, from Jordan Love, but elsewhere they, they could do pretty well there. Finally, and this is not an overall observation about the Packers or anything, but I thought it was really interesting how uh, how one thing got left out of this little story about the Seahawks restructuring their front office when they brought in Pete Carroll. Kerwin wrote, quote, the main reason Pete Carroll left USC to return to the NFL was because Paul Allen was willing to give him full control of all football decisions, end quote. That may have been a reason, but it wasn't the reason. Pete Carroll was hired by the Seattle Seahawks on January 8, 2010. What was announced on June 11, 2010? I'll tell you, the worst sanctions against any NCAA football team from Southern Methodist University to the time when this was handed down against USC. This, quoting from the New Orleans Times-Picayune, Quote, the USC Athletic Department was placed on four years of probation. The football program was given a two-year postseason ban and a loss of 30 total scholarships over the 2011, 12, and 13 seasons. The football team was forced to vacate victories starting in December 2004 and running through the 2005 season, including a BCS championship victory over Oklahoma. End quote. But yes, I'm sure the main deciding factor for Pete Carroll moving on from USC was that he had more control over football operations in Seattle. So I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. We will be back for another episode later this week. If you've got any questions that you want us to take up this offseason, as the offseason looks to keep on keeping on, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you want to talk about on the show. And if there's anything else you want to go through book-wise, let me know too, because we're coming right up to the end. Uh, of Take Your Eye Off the Ball. So uh, let us know if that's something you'd like to to see us continue doing. Uh, But as always, if this show uh, did anything for you, if you think somebody else would benefit from us, uh, from hearing it, uh, go ahead and share it. Grow the tent. Help us continue the conversation around the Green Bay Packers because that's what's going to help us all become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be.
I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.